You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set out to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 345. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sziasztok! Hello! Hey son, hey son, how are you guys? Good. I am fantastic. That's awesome. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even wait for your answer there. But I have to tell you all about it. I was in Gothenburg, or as some people now call it, Gothenburgo. <laughs> um, <laughs> Gothenburgo. For the big, huge book fair where the Swedish skeptics also had a booth. Actually, two booths, to be correct. Mm-hmm. This is a huge thing. Now it's been, of course, pandemics and stuff uh, for a couple of years. So this is the big return of the book fair. The official attendance was 82,000 people. In addition to that, they had sold 7,000 online tickets as well, because some things you could follow online as well. But I'm very proud of the group who um, put our program together and executed it excellently. There was things happening all the time, interviews, panel debates, everything live streamed. It was recorded and very, very professional. I can say so because I didn't take... I just went around there looking very important, but I didn't actually do a lot of the work. (laughs) The big boss. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I was just being a boss. So I'm I'm very proud of them. So I want to give a shout out to especially Staffan, Pajewan, Lotten, and also the others. There are too many to name, but you know who you are and you did a great job. (laughs) So that's great. We also had a lot of good guests in the panel debates and interviews, authors, journalists, science communicators, several of the former Enlightener of the Year awards, none of the confounders or the (laughs) the shameful prize didn't show up. We had, uh, I can mention Osa Vikfors, because I know that some skeptics abroad know who she is. She is a philosopher. She has some international reputations. She is crazy smart. She is both sitting in the Swedish Academy, which is for the, among other things, most famous for awarding the Nobel Literature Prize. And she is in the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. I think oh. she I don't know if anybody else have ever had that dual positions, uh, so she is uh, fantastic. And we've registered almost uh, 50 new members to the wow. uh, organization as well during the, the, week, uh, the weekend or the long weekend. And we have over a dozen videos that are already on YouTube if people need to understand Swedish, I'm afraid. But if you do, you can go there and check it out. So overall, a great success, and I'm very, very happy. Amazing. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. That sounds really good. Uh, That reminds me of... uh, First of all, to answer your question, I'm still (laughs) jet-lagged. So uh, I'm sorry that I I had to miss the the last episode as well. It's very overwhelming when you're going on a tour that is absolutely new to you. I haven't even been to the United States before. Really? My first ever trip was a 13-day tour covering basically six states <laughs> wow eight national parks two state parks and two tribal parks and you were the one who was supposed to know everything about the places you visited exactly exactly <laughs> and in order for you to be able to act like it you it's a hell of a lot of work to prepare for something like that and yeah. thank god for things like the national park service which provides you with all the information necessary on the parks <laughs> and thank god for uh, i don't want to involve god because it doesn't have anything to do with it well, thank him for staying out of it then. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> thanks to Google for Google Street View and things like that as well, because it was a lot of help. And apparently, I did convince them <laughs> that, uh, that I knew the area very well. Okay. The good thing is that I've been following a lot about uh, the US elections, the political situations and all that. So I could cover that part as well while we were traveling. It was interesting to cover Utah and the Mormons. <laughs> I like talking about them, especially because it's a, it's a bit of a, an exercise into how you talk about something that you have a very strong opinion on without that being very apparent and very, very obvious what your opinion is. Because that's not my job. So as a, as a tour guide, it's not my job to take sides. It's my job to 
be factual, give, yeah. Be factual and give, provide them with evidence. And I have to say that I think I I I, I nailed pulled it, it off. Yeah, yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> but that what you do, what you talked about, reminds me of the, this coming weekend that when we are with the Hungarian skeptics, we are going to attend Hungarokon, which Hungarokon. is <laughs> which is the name suggests that it's like a, a sci-fi and fantasy-related uh, gathering. We've been involved with it for the last couple of years. And uh, as every year since we started being involved, this year I'm going to give a talk again. And obviously I am talking about something that's happening at the moment, which is the book that I wrote an essay in will soon be released on the 10th of October. Awesome. Yeah, this is happening on the 1st of October that I give a talk on the same topic that I wrote the essay on. Mm. And that is the role of science and skepticism in Star Trek. And uh, yeah, this is this is what I'm gonna I'm gonna give a talk on at Skepticam as well. Yes, right. The schedule is now out. We've linked yeah. to it from our website, so you can see both me and Andras there. Exactly. Great. So I'm really looking forward to it, and I hope that it will generate a whole lot of new material as well, just like uh, your appearance at the book fair, Pontus, and uh, the the organizations. Well, I'm really looking forward to that. Great. Awesome. All right, that's great, uh, Andras. So, uh, Annika, how about you? Yeah, I'm I'm doing good, enjoying the colder temperatures in Germany. <laughs> oh, we went pretty much from summer into boom fall <laughs> or autumn, as you want to call yeah. it. The heavy fall. <laughs> we fell haha, into autumn. <laughs> yeah, something that is also in really nice autumn colors, and that I really am looking forward to read it is the new book out by the Skeptics Guide people. Yes, that's right. It's mm-hmm. called The Skeptic's Guide to the Future, and it's about what yesterday science and science fiction tell us about the world of tomorrow. So I'm excited Great. to read that, maybe tomorrow. Haha. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Before <laughs> the future is here. Exactly. <laughs> In the future, <laughs> I will read oh, that. Oh, I'm getting confused. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to that a lot as mm-hmm. well. I have mm-hmm. already bought it and downloaded awesome. it to my Kindle device. I haven't had time to read it because it came out yesterday, <laughs> but I'm I'm really looking forward I hadn't, to doing it. I didn't that. have time to read it yet because of my Kindle. Ha 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 ha. That was a German <laughs> oh, joke. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so also, we did actually get some listener feedback, and that's always welcome. Listener Stefan, he wrote in to ask us if we feel that organic, as in organic farming, etc., is the same as we in Sweden call ecologisk farming and ecologisk of course swedish word but you can understand it i think it's ecological farming so we don't have quote-unquote organic farming in sweden we have ecological farming and he wonders is that the same thing so it's i think it's more of a brand thing how you brand it but it is a good question and i've always assumed it's it's the same thing I did a little bit of looking up to just confirm it. Um, I don't want to be... You don't want to just live on assumptions. You want to know what you're talking about. So I did look into it. And my conclusion is yes. Yes, it is. It's the same thing. And of course, there may be some people who don't agree with me because I'm sure that if you dig into the details of anything, the answer is always more complicated than you think. The rules and the regulations of ecological farming in Sweden is supervised by the Swedish Board of Agriculture, but the actual certification of producers is handled by various Swedish branch organizations. And so since they set the rules and do all the certifications, I'm sure that if you're a pedant, you can find minor differences between Europe and US, for instance, or between countries even within Europe. So maybe you can make an argument for it's not exactly the same thing, but it's probably... I, I, for a lay person, as far as I can tell, for all intents and purposes, ecological farming in Sweden is organic farming and the philosophy is the same. Stefan also asks us to, well, maybe we should look into why we always are so dismissive of organic farming. And maybe we'll do a deep dive sometime, but very shortly, it's all built on the natural fallacy. Everything is good. Everything that's natural is good for you, and everything that's artificial is bad, which we know is not true. You can just take an example. Some fruits and berries are poisonous, that they are very natural. So, yeah, you, you, you get it. And there are artificial things that are great. So, um, that's a bad way of categorizing things. Also, there is this uh, view that you don't use pesticides in organic farming. 
but you do actually. It's just that they have to be quote unquote natural. So in Sweden, you can use pheromones, soap, sheep tallow, iron phosphate, paraffin oil, sulfur, vegetable oils, and a few other things. So you do that, and it sounds, oh, but it's no natural and good for you. But sulfur, really? Is sulfur good to spread on what you're supposed to eat? No, it's natural. Yeah, well, it's natural. Sulfur is natural. It's naturally occurring in the universe. But the reason you do it is because it kills things, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because you want to kill bugs or, or pests of different kinds. Also, of course, GMO is a, is forbidden, but that's the same with conventional farming in Europe mm. anyway, so it doesn't matter. But the problem isn't only that it's based on the natural fallacy. It's also that organic farming is less effective. So you need more land to produce the same amount of food. And that's the big problem, I think. So it's true that you use less pesticides per square meter or area, but you need a lot more area to produce the same volume. And I've heard uh, mentioned uh, an average of 40% more land is needed to produce the same amount of produce with uh, organic farming. And that's a big environmental problem. That's why I say that it's all a scam, if you will. And there's one more thing I want to mention as well, and that is that the philosophy of organic farming is very rigid. The rules are very strict, which means that there is no room for improvement. So say you come up with a new, better method that is more ecological, if you will, more (laughs) organic. It is better for the environment or more efficient or whatever. It's a better thing then you cannot call it organic farming anymore because it's not part of the organic farming set of rules. That makes it very unscientific because it it actually stops and discourages progress. You're not really encouraged to invent new and better ways. So um, thank you for uh, your question, Stefan. I think it was good. And I think maybe we should look into it even more in more Mm -hmm. detail at a later date. But according to me... You can tell people I said, so organic farming is a marketing scam. Yes. It pretends to be better, so you can charge a premium for your produce, but it's actually worse for the environment. So it's a scam. Yeah, <laughs> that's correct. <laughs> that's correct. Days closed. Yeah. When it comes to pesticides, if someone just says that it's not allowed, that's, that's why it's organic. It's just factually wrong. So a lot of, I think, 28 to 29 in the EU are listed as approved by the EU authorities and it could still be called organic farming. So mm-hmm. so some of them you mentioned even. All right. Uh It's not about farming. It's uh, a little bit about the EU, but there are concerning news from Italy. Yeah. I don't know if you're following Italian politics. But uh, what's happening right now in the country is a little bit concerning. So uh, last weekend, there were the Italian national elections. And it's obvious now that the party with the greatest uh, support from the public was Giorgia Meloni's uh, Brothers of Italy, Fratelli d'Italia, which is... Yeah, that's the the title of the anthem as well, by the way. That's a bit of a clue as well as to how nationalistic that party is. The more concerning part is that if you go far enough, that party can be traced back to the National Fascist Party prior to and during the Second World War. Obviously, they were banned after the Second World War. So the Neo-Fascist Party, which was called the Italian Social Movement, was the successor of that. And out of that grew a couple of other parties, including Silvio Berlusconi's The People of Freedom and the National Alliance Party. So, but this is not the only reason why they are being called somewhat of a neo-Nazi part or a neo-fascist part. We don't call them Nazis, but the Italians, uh, they were called the fascist party. So that it's a bit of a neo-fascist party. And it looks like they have gained a very alarming amount of support because now 26% of the voters supported their party. That doesn't seem like a lot, but that means that they are the largest party in this election. So they will be the ones who can form a government, definitely have to be a coalition government, but who they will go into a coalition is another question. But there are two options for that. 
the league led by the anti-immigrant guy, Matteo Salvini. And the other one is ex-premier Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia. Mm. <laughs> is he still alive? He must be 100 years old now. Well, I think he's 80-something, but, uh, yeah. well, he's, he's taking care of himself, a couple of operations here and there. <laughs> he looks like he's coming back from the grave, by the way, but it's not the looks that is the problem here, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and that shows us, us something very, very clearly. Even though Mario Draghi, who was welcomed by the international community because he's an expert in finances... And he could basically put together the necessary steps to stabilize the country's economy and and, and the country in a, in a very bad situation. I'm referring to COVID and stuff. He could do that, but he's not a populist. And out of that situation created by the pandemic and the economic downturn that followed, the new levels of populism could grow up. And uh, at the beginning, Salvini looked like he was the one who would profit from that. But a couple of missteps put him in the second place. But now, Giorgio Meloni seems to be the winner in this situation. And uh, everyone is um, very happy about her being the first uh, female prime minister, premier of the country, which is okay to be happy about. I think it's legitimate to be happy about that fact. But the fact that she's leading a neo-fascist party is not so good. <laughs> they are against immigration. They want to stop a refugees right where they leave their countries. You know, for example, Salvini, if he gets into the government again, that is bad. Because Salvini is the guy who turned back refugee boats from the shores, not letting them dock so these are the steps that show us how unstoppably unhuman <laughs> these people can be. And uh, if, if they get into power, that is a very bad turn for Italy and for the rest of us, because they are very critical towards the European Union as well, obviously, because of the reasons that the European Union is doing a lot of humanitarian work and steps towards accepting immigrants and especially refugees from countries where people cannot leave anymore. Yeah, so that will generate a lot of friction inside the EU as well. However, because Italy is one of the greatest beneficiaries of the funds that are connected to rebuilding the economies of the countries after the COVID situation, I think they will be doing something along the lines of being a double-faced kind of party. There is a saying as well about the Italians by this time that um, they tend to hold two press conferences uh, from the EU when, when it's e uh, anything EU-related. They do one on the first floor where everybody can hear them and do one at the basement that is only for their own voters back home. And the, the two messages are completely different and opposing messages. But I have to say it's not an Italian thing because Orban, Viktor Orban does that all the time. So he just doesn't do a press conference in Brussels. He comes home and tells it to his own people in the government-owned TV channels. So <laughs> that's, that's the only difference. So it's a little bit concerning. Without me going into more detail into that, I think it's very, very concerning that ha that's happening. And I have to mention that Meloni has tied connections to a couple of other parties, the aforementioned Orban. She is in good terms with the Sweden Democrats. And oh, yeah. uh, she's been affiliated with Donald Trump and uh, other political actors that are not to be followed. Yeah, it's an interesting situation. And I don't think this is going to end up well. I would like to be wrong about this. <laughs> yes, please. Hmm. All right, but um, yeah, speaking of which, uh, we do have really wrong and a couple of news and the Twitch to go through, so uh, why don't we do that? Okay, and as usual, we're going to start with This Week in Skeptical History, also known as Twitch. And I'm going to talk about something that happened on the 27th of uh, September 1989, and it happened in Voronezh. Does it ring a bell? 
I don't think so. Maybe I confuse it with something else. I, I'm happy to hear about this because <laughs> I, don't, I don't recognize it directly. Okay, so first of all, Voronezh is in uh, uh, Russia. It's in the former Soviet Union. I think it's still in the European region of Russia. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why I decided to go with it. Now, what happened on the 27th of September 1989 was that apparently an unidentified flying object landed in the middle of the city, in a city park, and um, there were three witnesses. The three witnesses were children, and uh, apparently it became a massive phenomenon that was circulating in the news. And uh, one of the organizations that uh, generated that news cycle was TASS, which is the official Russian news agency that has been around for ages. So it was it was launched in 1904. So it's a state-owned agency. Now, we one, one thing we have to understand is that the three children saw something, a light of some sort, that kind of light was um, banana-shaped. and uh, Banana-shaped? Maybe it was a banana. Flying yes, bananas. Could, uh, okay. Flying bananas, <laughs> yeah. We're going bananas here. Um, yeah, so it was something of a banana-shaped thing. They claimed that it was as it was not an optical illusion, especially Lieutenant Sergei Matveyev of the Voronezh District Police Station said as well that he saw the landing UFO as well. The three children from a local school, there are two boys and a girl, Vasya Surin, Zhenya uh, Blinov, and uh, Yulia Sholokova, they were just playing in a park. Okay, and they saw this banana-shaped. It was later added, by the way, that it was banana-shaped. But what <laughs> the original report said was that they saw, and I quote, a pink shining in the sky, and then spotted a ball of deep red color. They estimated it to be about ten meters, a little bit, a little bit less than ten meters in diameter. Well, that is the first stop for me every time that I hear about UFO sightings. If you don't know the distance, you're, it's just you see a blurry thing and you estimate the diameter of that so accurately. I don't know. Never mind. And then apparently a crowd started together and they saw some kind of a hatch opening and a humanoid appeared. A humanoid that was about three meters tall with three eyes as well. And uh, very silvery, fashionably dressed in silvery overalls. And he has bronze boots. And like bronze a boots? Bronze boots, yeah. I hope not literally. It would bronze collar, I hope. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be very hard to walk. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, we don't know. We don't know that. It was. All right, uh, okay. And then it, just, it disappeared. And they reappeared with a robot as well. And then uh, one of the children started screaming. And with a stare, the scream stopped. The stare from the alien. The screaming stopped. And the other alien drew a gun of some sort and aimed and shot at one of the children who disappeared and then reappeared when the aliens were gone. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. So the story so far is that Someone travels all across the galaxy in a ship that's only about 10 meters big. But yeah. by the way, the person driving this ship is three meters big so and has a robot. And he comes down and shoots at children. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's basically it. Yes. <laughs> Sounds very plausible. <laughs> so... The interesting thing was how it developed. So that was the original report. But TASS decided to go with it and stick with it. So they tried to corroborate the sightings. They said they were consulted. They consulted experts. Now, the experts were geologists from the Voronezh Geophysical Laboratory. And one of them was a certain Dr. Silanov. And he was claimed to have said that it was confirmed through the use of biolocation, which is basically nothing else but an ESP dowsing. So it could not have been the work of uh, the Voronezh Geophysical Laboratory. 
And later, while Paul Kurtz from Skeptical Inquirer decided to write an article about that, about a year later, he decided to contact a couple of people. And he contacted Silanov as well. And Silanov said, absolutely not. We, <laughs> we did not say that. We did, <laughs> we, it, it was reported without. So that tells you how this phenomenon became such a, such a sensationalized topic that they tried to put it out as fact. Now, we have to understand that we are in the process of Glasnost and Perestroika. Glasnost was about opening up state communication, transparency. And in that context, you have to understand that uh, anything that was reported by the people had to be taken seriously. So it was a bit of an overshoot, <laughs> but it was in that environment when they tried to open the communications up, everyone was so eager to report everything that the people said and that the people claimed. That was probably one of the reasons why in the end of the 1980s, all the way until the 2000s probably, in Russia there was an emergence of sightings like this. Mm. So reports of UFOs, reports of aliens and all that shit. It was very, very popular. And not only in Russia, but everywhere in the Eastern Bloc that was previously controlled by the Soviet Union, it was the same. So when the Hungarian skeptic movement started, that was mostly because of UFO sightings. Yeah, it's being referred to as a Voronezh UFO incident still up until today. A lot of people have dealt with it. A lot of people have done investigations into it. But I think the most thorough account of that is um, the writing by uh, Paul Kurtz. The Paranormal Pandemonium in the Soviet Union is the title of the article that he wrote in Skeptical Inquirer back in 1990. I do recommend that. Obviously, the, the link will be in the show notes. So, yeah. It's been a while. It's, I think, yeah, 33 years ago. Wow. The Voronezh UFO incident. So the most likely explanation, just to close it out, is that there were three children with an overactive imagination. And, and uh, then, of course, it was all enhanced by sensationalist reporting. And absolutely. So it's the yeah. We know the recipe. <laughs> we know how. We know how this works. We know how how to do this. And uh, I think it was done very well from a technical point of view. <laughs> so that was this week in skeptical history. So I am wondering whether the Pope will be poked by Pontus this week. <laughs> <laughs> no. He will not. He has not done anything that I think is worth worthy of poking. And we do have a lot of other things to go through. So we'll okay. give him a rest this week. And, well, I'm sure he will come up with something in the future. Okay, then, then let's move on to the news. Yes, let's do that. And as we record this, it's just about a day and a half since... Uh, this happened, uh, but all listeners should by now have heard about the explosions that damaged the two Nord Stream pipelines at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. So the Nord Stream pipelines, of course, are used to pump natural gas from Russia to the rest of Europe. And it's been a lot in the, about them in the news uh, lately because of the Russian war on Ukraine. And I think to just point out the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, I don't think was in use at the time yet. It's the newer one, but never mind. We don't know exactly what happened, but the general consensus is that there were two different explosions damaging both pipelines, and now there are gas leaking out from these pipes, and you can see it bubbling on the water surface as it comes up. There's been footage in the, in the news about it. These two explosions happened just a couple of hours apart, and that's why people are saying this cannot have been an accident. It's so unlikely that that would happen spontaneously that it has to be an act of sabotage. And uh, I tend to agree, but we don't know yet, but I tend to agree. And this is the kind of situation where being a good skeptic is the most difficult, I find, because everybody wants an, wants an explanation and they want it now. And it's so easy to invent conspiracy theories. And I can think of several myself, Just, but, but you have to refrain from doing that. Everybody's now looking at who has the best motive to sabotage the export of gas from Russia. 
Russia, of course, have sort of sabotaged it themselves in the past by just switching off the, the flow. But this is, of course, done to put pressure on Europe to stop helping Ukraine uh, defending themselves. But Russia doesn't really seem to gain on blowing up the pipelines because they have control over the flow anyway. And um, if they want to turn it back on again, let's say they are now try- they're trying to blackmail Europe, let's be honest, limiting the gas supply. So if they would succeed in this blackmail, they would like to be able to put it on again because they make a lot of money from selling this gas. So blowing it up doesn't seem like it's in Russia's uh, interest, if you say will. Ukraine, on the other hand, may gain on this sabotage because it takes away the blackmail and it takes away the reason for Europe to become lenient against Russia. On the other hand, this is a very risky strategy because if it comes out that Ukraine was behind it, Europe may get mad (laughs) with them and uh, be less inclined to help them in the future. So I think so far most people would agree about this very superficial analysis It could be argued that this sabotage is neither in Russia's nor in Ukraine's interest. And then the speculations begin, of course. We have to make sure that we don't jump on the bandwagons and and create or facilitate new conspiracy theories because they are already showing up. It's coming. One idea was that it's Russia has done it and trying to blame Ukraine. So it's sort of a false flag operation. Another one is that it is Ukraine after all. Or it could be a third party, maybe some rogue elements, maybe sympathetic to Ukraine or not, doing this without being sanctioned by either party. And what we should wait for is more information. Don't go with all the speculations that it's triggered now. At the moment, we just have to accept that we don't know yet. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> exactly. It's difficult because we want to, to jump to conclusions, every yeah. one of us. Yeah. I mean, you can't yeah. help starting to say, oh, I wonder why, wonder, I wonder, I wonder. Like, you can wonder all you want, but just yeah. remember that doesn't prove anything. Exactly. Yeah, it, it is really important to stick to your guns in that regard, <laughs> pun intended, mm-hmm. and to stay skeptical. That's also the case with Skepcon. We know, like, yeah, ESC just happened. The German involvement in in a, in a congress is just over, but the German skeptics are never idle and are already preparing Skepcon 23 now, which will happen um, on the 18th to 20th of May 2023 in Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. They're calling for papers that you have to hand in until the 23rd of October. They are looking for topics like anthroposophy, pseudomedicine, 5G, parascientific teaching material on, on at universities, science communication, uh, especially in regards of parasciences, and then agriculture, energy, and climate, and the debate around it, of course, from the scientific point of view. So if you have any, um, yeah, if, if you're an expert in one of these topics and want to hand in papers, you can do that to Centrum, which is like Z-E-N-T-R-U-M at G-W-U-P.org. But we also put everything of that in the show notes. This seems to be very interesting and I'm already excited for it. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Awesome. We mm-hmm. uh, skeptics always keep busy and... Uh, I'm sure it will be a great congress or conference. Exactly. Yeah, we've talked a, a lot about political situations. And us skeptics, we tend to be very quick at, in criticizing social media and uh, blaming social media for everything that's happening to the world right now. But we hmm. tend to forget that social media is being used by people. So, yeah, there are bots, there are automated messaging actors. However, politicians are on social media these days, and they can be spreading misinformation like crazy. Well, a couple of politicians from around the world come to mind. Donald J. Trump, obviously leading the crowd, and there's Boris Johnson as well. And these two people have been shown to have propagated misinformation like crazy. We are talking about 30,000 claims, um, false or misleading claims by Donald Trump during his presidency. Yeah, Boris Johnson is probably a runner-up in that uh, race. Now, 
The question emerged and uh, there was an international team with uh, scientists from uh, Austria, Germany and the UK who were interested in finding out whether politicians from mainstream parties are doing better or worse in the UK, Germany and the US when it comes to spreading misinformation and untrust and and leading and, and promoting links to untrustworthy sites. Now, there are two parts of that. First of all, you have to gather all the information, all the tweets uh, from mainstream politicians. And then the second one is determining somehow whether the links are to trustworthy sites. Well, the first part is just gathering all, all of it. Now, the second part is more, is more tricky. And one thing that the, the team used, and by the way, the team included Stephen Lewandowski, whom we interviewed on episode 247. So go back and listen to that episode if you're interested. All the work that he does is absolutely amazing, including the debunking handbook and, and the like. Now, they determined whether a website is trustworthy using something that is called a NewsGuard. And NewsGuard is basically a tool to determine the, new, the, the trustworthiness on the basis of nine different criteria. So the nine different criteria are whether it publishes false content repeatedly, obviously it shouldn't, uh, whether it gathers and presents information responsibly, uh, meaning that they don't overreach, they don't try to draw conclusions that are not there and to be drawn, whether they regularly correct or clarify any errors occurring in the process, whether they handle the difference between news and opinion responsibly so that it's clear and it's clearly communicated to the readers or the public, and if they avoid deceptive headlines, which which we know not everyone does. So <laughs> most no. of newspapers, most of publishers, they like to draw attention to their articles. And the best possible means for that is a headline that is very, very catchy. Clickbait. Um, Clickbait, <laughs> as we call it. And um, there has to be transparency as well involved with the website disclosing ownership and financing and clearly labeling advertising when that happens. Obviously, the other things are that it, we have to reveal who's in charge if there are conflicts of interest and um, the content creators should be revealed along with uh, contact or bio biographical information. So whenever that all is there, obviously there is a scale. The higher their rank in all those criteria, the higher up the scale in the trustworthiness they are. So this is the first one that they used. An interesting result came out. It looks like over the five-year period that they've analyzed, it looks like the UK MPs were not doing that badly in terms of linking to misinformation. They did it in about 0.01% of the times. That's not much. Yes, whereas in America, in the United States, electing mainstream US politicians did it 1.8% of the times. Mm -hmm. And in Germany, surprisingly, it was in 1.3% of the times. So um, that means that um, German politicians seem to be doing worse than UK politicians, with a couple of exceptions, probably. That, um, of I course, think it, I was I say, going to say, this is probably very individual. I mean, think if you look at only Donald Trump, I would say that 70% of what he's treating is misinformation. 1% doesn't sound too much. Yeah, that's overall. So mm. that's that's overall when it comes to all the mainstream politicians that they, they've analyzed the tweets of. Mm. So it's really interesting because we are talking about millions of tweets. Mm. <laughs> so that they've analyzed a couple of million of them. The, and there was another interesting find of this uh, analysis. And that is that it looks like conservative politicians tend to use much more of the false hmm. content. Not surprising. Uh, that's what you, that's what you see. I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, and obviously they didn't want to to have. Um, they wanted to check for possible biases, so they decided to go for another tool to assess. 
that situation and they used media bias fact check. That is another very interesting tool using using very similar criteria that NewsGuard does, but from a slightly different angle. But they wanted to double check that they, it's not only their own biases that resulted in, in, in these uh, findings. It still doesn't mean that uh, we can lean back and, and relax here in Europe because there's a lot to do. And apparently the amount of falsehood that are being propagated are still enough to stir the public opinion towards nonsense. Mm. Good to have factual numbers on this instead of just me thinking that it's 70%. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that's just what I feel and, and that's not what you should base your We We have to emphasize, on. yeah, and we have to emphasize that it's an overall. So it's, it's when yeah. it, they didn't go into how certain individual politicians were doing that. We have that. So with, with Donald Trump, we have... <laughs> We have a database of of his falsehoods. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want to talk about false claims too. (laughs) Okay. Welcome. Because there's a plea for more support of integrative medicine. That's, of course, homeopathy. Um, Mm -hmm. And what they want is more wellness pluralism and freedom of therapy. Freedom, freedom Mm -hmm. of therapy. Mm -hmm. Freedom from therapy. Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. (laughs) So who who is asking for the this? The homeopath brought out this declaration. It's a worldwide declaration to integrative medicine, and it's brought out by Eurocom. Yeah, and they want to draw attention to pluralism in medicine, which is something that shouldn't be. <laughs> and they want to advocate traditional, complementary, and integrative care. So Eurocam and the European Federation of Homeopathic Patients Association, they issued that. Mm-hmm. They call for an open scientific discourse, more research funds, and more support for young people in the field of integrative medicine. And this declaration is, of course, supported by the German Central Association of Homeopathic Doctors. Mm. And now, hold on to your seats, the Homeopathy Research Institute. Oh, they do mm-hmm, research, mm-hmm. do they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, they aim to have patient-centered and holistic healthcare. They want uh, healthcare to take the whole person into account, which means their psychological, mental, social, and spiritual dimensions. Spiritual. You know, right? <laughs> so that's what they what they want to do. And they see um, especially opportunities in chronic diseases and side effects. They want more support in that and call for more openness from the system that there would be international st- training standards. <laughs> I'm I'm all for international training standards, but I want them to be. Don't do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so no, they should be based in science, and it's full of buzzwords. All yeah, of what exactly. you said. It's like uh, bling, bling, inter- bling, bling. Inter- yeah, it's like a yeah, bingo. Exactly. Integrative medicine, of course, is just a fancy word for wanting to do alternative medicine as well as normal medicine or evidence-based me- medicine, and since. Alternative medicine has not been proved to work or proven not to work. But you shouldn't use that. You prove yeah. that it works first, then you can integrate it. Mm. Actually, medicine is integrated by definition. It integrates everything that works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And and this horse shit about uh, holistic uh, medicine taking into account all. All good doctors do that, except perhaps the spiritual dimension, because there's no proof of that. No, there there is a thing, obviously, uh, medicine is divided into subsections and certain fields where there are experts on the field to consult. And uh, whenever that happens, it makes people feel like they're not being treated for the big thing. So this is why you have to have someone who oversees your treatment, your diagnoses and treatments as well. But... It has to be based on the certain individual fields of medicine. Hmm? Because if you have some kind of a systematic problem, you probably have several different sides of it, uh, several different aspects. Yeah, but uh, but what I'm saying is it's a myth that evidence-based medicine or real good general practitioners don't do this. They they do that. It is a myth, Yeah. yeah. 
Okie dokie. So we've been talking about politicians a lot, I think, in this episode. And so um, I'm going to do that too. So welcome to another round of Pontus Pokes the Politicians. <laughs> As you know, the Swedish parliament is busy trying to set up a new government. And it will likely be led by the moderates, which is, of course, the traditional right-wing party, with support of a very small liberal party and the Sweden Democrats. That became much bigger in this election, as you probably have heard, than they have been ever before. Now, this will still take weeks or perhaps a couple of months before they have a government in place. That's usually how it works. But the first thing they have to do is to appoint a speaker for parliament, because that's the person who gives somebody the task of forming or trying to form a government which is then of course voted upon in the parliament. So it's a very important position. There's also a vice speaker and then there's a second vice speaker appointed because you need to have backups. If one person gets ill or cannot do it, uh, it has to be done because it's an important job. All of those three positions have now been filled. It was done during the weekend, I believe. The main speaker has been appointed. Uh, He has had a role before. He's not controversial. He is uh, a moderate, but he's trusted by all parties involved, I think. The vice speaker is a social democrat. So the side that will be in opposition, but it's all good. It's a good thing. But I'm going to talk about the second vice speaker. She is a Sweden democrat, and she illustrates the issue with members of that party, I think. Uh, And never mind right versus left, we'll leave the ideology out of this for a minute. This is about uh, science and being logical and being a sane person, I almost said. Her name is Julia Kronlid, and she is frankly clueless uh, about how the real world works from a scientific point of view. She has over the years put forward over 50 bills that in some way or other wants to limit abortions. They have not been approved, but she has been lobbying for that. And I know some skeptics say that this is out of bounds. This is not a subject for science, but I I say it is. Because when you look at all the disinformation that is spread about abortions, you look at fake images of fetuses that turns out to be just photos of toys, things like that. Baseless claims that when there is a heartbeat in the fetus, they can feel pain or or even have a conscious mind. All of that is uh, non-proven and probably nonsense. Also denying that women's rights to their own body is less important than than the rights of a small clump of cells. That is not very... I, I don't know if it's scientific or not, but it's nonsense, really. And it's based on religious beliefs, which we know are nonsense. But this lady is not just about abortion views. Uh, It's not just that. When she was asked if she believes that the Earth was created 6,000 years ago, she refused to reply because she did not, quote, want to get into details about time aspects, end quote. I don't know that time aspects are controversial unless you are a creationist, I guess. (laughs) What time of day it is. It's not controversial. Anyway, she also said that uh, evolution is, quote-unquote, just a theory. We've heard that before. And that this concept of evolution should be questioned from a scientific point of view because it, quote, was such a long time ago, end quote. Yeah, all right. Great. Well, a long time could be a lot of things. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It could be thousands or it could be billions of years. You could say it was a long time ago we started this podcast, but it's (laughs) not controversial or uh, impossible to investigate. So (laughs) this is the kind of people put forward by the Sweden Democrats to important political position. Awful. Because either they couldn't find anyone more sane than that, or they think she is right. So... uh, Bloody hell, Uh, this is now the second largest party in Swedish parliament. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Well, speaking of politicians and science not necessarily agreeing with each other, there is one topic that divides a lot of political parties. And, well, there are massive differences between countries regarding fracking. Do you know what fracking is? Yes. Yes. It's also called hydraulic fracturing when it's um you have to open up bedrock formations under which lie gas or oil or layers that you want to extract. But the problem is that 
you do that by pumping pressurized liquid into those layers that actually break up, loosens up somewhat the bedrock formation so that it could release that material that you're after. So there are certain problems with this. One of them is um, even though it's, it's used for oil and gas extraction, it comes with a side effect of a lot of methane being released into the environment as a result. Mm. So that's that's one. We do we do know that methane is a very strong greenhouse gas. That's not necessarily the way you want to go when you're trying to fight global climate change, right? Mm. That's one thing. The other thing is, and there there is a lot of concern regarding that, is that as a result of fracturing, there could be tremors in the ground triggered by these fracturing processes. This is the basis on which the UK government in 2019 banned the process of fracking. So there was no opening for that for a while. But I don't know if you remember when I talked about the new UK government, one of the last episodes, but in that government, the new business and energy secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, he's a very infamous guy, Mm -hmm. by the way, in the UK, (laughs) and especially among skeptics, his decision was announced that the ban is basically ended by the government. And that decision comes after the publication of a British Geological Survey report that there is still a limited understanding of the impacts of such drilling on earth tremors. So what did the government do, basically? They decided because there is a limited understanding, which is, I think, very correct from a scientific point of view. They decided that, okay, we don't know. Therefore, there is no effect of this kind. (laughs) Right? So this is basically the line of thinking that the, the UK government now follows with regards to fracking. I understand the urge, I understand the need they would like to be able to extract all that natural gas and probably even oil from shale layers. But when it comes to decisions, and this is my pet topic, the science-based decisions in politics, this is not science-based. This is ignoring science completely. It's motivated reasoning. It's motivated reasoning. So, um, of course, as always, this Scottish and Welsh government, they still oppose the idea of fracking. But uh, the Westminster government decided to lift the ban. Yeah. Very, very bad decision, in my opinion. And, and it completely ignores science or misunderstands science. Yeah. Or deliberately does that. Deliberately does that, yes. Some um, argue that there are still a lot of criteria that companies who do the fracking uh, need to meet. And that will provide still a lot of opportunities to avoid fracking. But I don't think this is the reason why the government decided to lift the ban. It's to open up the doors for these actions. So it, it, it could potentially be a candidate for really wrong i think as well (laughs) with uh, all the news covered i think we need a proper candidate for really wrong right so there is a german doctor anika yes she is working as a chief physician at the hospital of Kalmar, which is in Sweden. So she's German, but she works in, in Sweden. Her very international. Very international, <laughs> really wrong this week. Her name is Ute Kruger, if I pronounced that correctly. Yes, you did. <laughs> she appears in video clips online on, on a platform called Rumble. And that has been viewed uh, hundreds of thousands of times. In these videos, she raises her strong suspicions that the COVID vaccine causes what she calls turbo cancer, quote unquote. Turbo cancer. Yeah. Interesting. New thing. (laughs) It's not quantum cancer, right? (laughs) It's not quantum. No, she got tired of that. uh... That's going to be the cure. The quantum cancer. The quantum cancer is going to be here. Okay, that's that's you claiming this. You have to back that up with studies. Anyway, this this lady, she says that she has seen cancer come back in patients after a long time after they were, quote unquote, more or less cured. She then says she, quote, has a feeling, 
end quote, that her breast cancer patients are younger than before and that their cancer seems to be, quote, more aggressive than usual, end quote. So that's the, all the scientific basis she needs to go out and claim this. So here's a direct quote from her. Relatively shortly after vaccination against COVID-19, the tumor explodes. There is a big spread of cancer in the body and patients die a month later, end quote. At least that's her feeling. Total nonsense, of course. If this was true, it would have uh, been discovered by somebody else, not by, because she has a feeling. She's obviously building all this on her own personal anecdotes, ignoring the world expertise and scientific consensus in the area. And to make this worse, the director of the regional health and medical services in Kalmar, Johan Rosenqvist, he has said that he does not intend to do anything about this because these statements were made outside of work. So she was doing this on her free time, so it's not a problem. <laughs> um, this whole affair has led to strong reactions from several people, among others, Johan Algren, who is an associate professor of oncology and head of operations at the Regional Cancer Center in Uppsala in Sweden. And he said, quote, the regions and the healthcare staff have worked extremely hard both to take care of all the COVID patients and to ensure that everyone is vaccinated. This has caused both suffering and large sums of money. What this doctor is now doing is bordering on sabotage. End quote. So that's it. Um, this German-Swedish chief physician, Ute Kruger, who is spreading misinformation and unscientific nonsense, and the head of the medical region of Kalmar, Johan Rosenqvist, who is refusing to do anything about it, they both share today's prize for being really wrong. Well deserved. All right. Thank you very much for that, Pontus. Thanks a lot. And uh, there is only one more thing to do before we conclude the show. And that is a quote. This quote is by Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, German philosopher. We had one um, quote by him before, but not this one. Mm -hmm. Hegel okay. lived from 1770 to 1831. And our quote today is, Truth is found neither in the thesis or the antithesis, but in an emergent synthesis which reconciles the two. Hmm. Yeah, that's There's right. a lot of thesis in there. I'm sorry. <laughs> the thesis. <laughs> yes. Good old philosophy, long time since it was said, but I think it's still yes. very true. <laughs> I wonder. Never mind. Okay, so uh, that concludes our show, and I'd like to thank both of you, Annika and Pontus, for joining me today, or rather allowing me to, do, to join you again. Thank mm -hmm. you. Okay, you're mm -hmm. welcome. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Bis dann. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments, or death threats to info at theesp.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast underscore eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe. Three forty-five, at least. At least. Okay. You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Co Co Con Con Congress. Cops I was going to say Congress. Congress. <laughs> <laughs> we could ask you how you're doing, but how you doing? How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> ESP drowsing. 
uh, kind of things. Not drowsing, dowsing. Dows- sorry. Yeah, say, say it again. So <laughs> it's will the poke be poke? <laughs> will the poke? Come on. No, it's almost uh, every week. Somebody. It was Annika last yes. week. It's a popey and a pokey and a pokey pokey. Okay, so I'm fault, wondering it's the same if the word, essentially. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This German Swedish chief physician, chief physician, it's hard to say chief physician. Very efficient. Efficient chief physician. Fish and chip. Fish and chips. Okay, that sounds good. She may be a fish and chip physician, but. Fish and chip. For all I can.